Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, today is October 23rd, 2015, and uh, beautiful fall day outside. Uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet, we have Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. We have a full compliment today. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, today we are going to be talking about Lyme disease uh, or Borreliosis. Um, <clears throat> Lyme disease is the most common American tick-borne infectious disease. Uh, it often goes undiagnosed or becomes misdiagnosed and is considered a minor acute illness by the mainstream system, mainstream medical system. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's been an interesting problem recently because uh, there are up to 300,000 new cases a year. Um, and because of this, uh, this misdiagnosis that often, tap, uh, often happens, uh, Lyme disease sufferers go through uh, quite a, a tumultuous experience um, <clears throat> they're not recognized. Uh, sometimes they're told that they are either faking it or they have some kind of a psychological problem. Uh, it actually is somewhat similar in that regard to Morgellons, which we talked about in the past. Um, it seems that it, uh, people who suffer from Lyme's really have to fight uh, to get recognized and get the treatment that they need um, because they're diagnosed with a bunch of other things that are not accurate and then the, the treatments don't work. And um, So they really go through a a problematic process. Um, <clears throat> so let's uh, let's jump into it today. We'll start off a little bit with uh, uh, Erica has a, a recent article about Lyme that she's going to share with us, and then we'll get into the details about the condition after that. Yeah. So in the news this last week, um, uh, Lyme advocates, a Lyme advocacy group, they um, are basically. Um, saying that the Center for Disease Control um, violates the law. And um, they have made a point to write a document and um, use federal law to support their claim that the Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA, and uh, the Center for Disease Control needs to basically change their guidelines that they're grossly out of date the uh, petition is called End Peremptoral Treatment of the IDSA Guidelines for Lyme Disease, and it was filed with the CDC's Bacteria Disease Branch on Wednesday, October 14th. And the petitioners are exercising their First Amendment right to petition the government for redress of grievances, along with a more specific right added by the Administrative Procedure Act which provides interested persons with the right to uh, petition for the issuance and amendment or repeal of the rule. And so they basically claim because of the restrictions imposed by the critically flawed IDSA guidelines promoted by the CDC, thousands of critically ill patients are harmed by misdiagnosis. And as Jonathan was mentioning, denial of um, medically necessary treatment the CDC's failure to provide equivalent exposure for more recent guidelines from the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society compounds the harm by admitting information about evidence-based treatments that could help these severely ill patients recover from this 
devastating disease. Um, in addition, the advocates want to know why does the CDC, a public agency tasked with protecting the health of U.S. taxpayers, promulgate the IDSA guidelines as policy, particularly when it can be demonstrated that the guidelines authors allow, uh, disallow, ignore, or reject the very body scientific evidence that contradicts their narrow view of the disease. And so basically this idea of conflicts of interest. Um, on a side note, there was an article that was carried about a month ago called Chronic Lyme's Disease Epidemic, the Government Chooses to Ignore, and Gabby had mentioned it on one of our past shows as a connecting the dot. But it happens that the people that have done these IDSA Lyme guidelines have direct conflicts of interest. And uh, this was reported by Lyme Disease, the CDC's greatest cover-up and what they don't want you to know. And basically, uh, Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal has investigated the IDSA panel members for possible violation of antitrust laws and conflicts of interest. And in particular, the 14 panel authors of the first edition guidelines, six of them, um, or their universities, held patents on Lyme or its co-infection. Four received funds from Lyme or co-infection test kit manufacturers, and four were paid by insurance companies to write Lyme policy guidelines or consult in Lyme legal issues. Nine received money from Lyme disease vaccine manufacturers, and some of the authors were involved in more than one of these conflicts of interest. So it's pretty, you know, it's like the gatekeepers. They... um, you know, they don't, they claim that it's not really a disease, as Jonathan had said, it's all in people's head. And there are doctors out there who have had effective treatments. And, you know, as we'll talk about later in the show, they're usually marginalized, called quack, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, even sued and taken to court, having their medical licenses revoked. And it's a, it's a pretty disturbing picture when you think about it, especially as Jonathan quoted those you know, more than HIV and breast cancer people is affecting Lyme, up to even 400,000 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. If you look at the IDSA guidelines, they um, they say that uh, Lyme is only an acute um, issue and that it's not a big deal and that a 14-day course of antibiotics takes care of it, which is just crazy when you think about it, and they completely deny the idea that there is actually a chronic condition that's, uh, that's associated with this. Um, and, you know, it might be that in certain acute situations, if it's caught early enough, um, that kind of uh, quick antibiotic uh, protocol might, uh, might have uh, uh, be effective, but um, they completely uh, ignore um, all the, the scientific evidence as well as, as, well as the uh, anecdotal evidence that uh, there is a, a more serious problem here. Well, they say it's hard to get and it's easy to treat, which of course yeah. is not true. But I think it was me and Erica were talking about this a while ago. Like we can't understand what the issue is with Lyme's disease. It's not like uh, it's too expensive. I mean, there's other chronic diseases or diseases that require a lot of treatment that aren't treated in this way. Mm-hmm. So. 
Mm. It kind of reminds me of who I don't know who said this earlier. Kind of like Jonathan maybe said that it reminds me of the whole thing about uh, Morgellons, mm. and it has this I don't know kind of untouchableness to it, and I I can't figure out why. <laughs> it's not mm. like uh, I think drug I... companies wouldn't make money because you know drug companies make money off of AIDS or diabetes and those are all chronic conditions and they're not being kind of pushed aside or saying you're wrong. It's all in your head that you have AIDS. I don't understand. (laughs) For me, it reminds me the debate that happened with peptic uh, peptic ulcers and H. Mm. pylori. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was an incredible resistance to accept the fact that it was caused by these uh, bacteria. And uh, treatment is very easy. Like if you give uh, the particle of antibiotics for two, three weeks, people recover, you know, and they don't have those problems where they end up in a table, in the surgery table, you know, with a perforated ulcer. So those Mm. incidents are kind of in the past part of like medical history, at Mm. least for young people. And uh, people, well, there were speculations that there were conflict of interest because if people get treated for this bacteria and they don't develop the need for chronic drugs like um, and pump inhibitors like omeprazole, you know, and other drugs, they become more, you know, independent. They literally heal. So that's another possibility that, you know, if people realize that all these, their severe autoimmune diseases or chronic conditions are caused by bugs and uh, that there is treatment for this, that there is alternative treatment and mainstream treatment that is very cheap. Antibiotics Mm. are very cheap, actually. Um, People may heal and they will not need, like, you know, long-term, super high-tech diagnostic tests like Mm. MRIs to diagnose uh, the the consequences of Lyme disease in your neurological system. You won't need many such drugs, immunotherapy drugs. They can cost in the Mm -hmm. thousands of dollars per vial, you know. So um, compare that with a box of antibiotics that can cost like $20, you know. So, yeah, it's going to be too bad. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons, too, it seems the CDC may have upped the amount from what was it originally they said like 30,000 new cases of Lyme each year, and then they upped this amount to 300,000 was this potential for a vaccine. Hmm. You know, so these, these same conflicts of interest in the IDSA, you know, this idea of patenting the virus or the bacteria and then and then having this miraculous vaccine come out. I think it was the Baxter Industries that was working on it. And if our readers are interested, there's a article that came out in 2013 on Truthout uh, called More Corruption Within the CDC, Lyme Disease Community Blows the Whistle. And they talk about this vaccine and how that may be why the CDC changed its numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of competing interests going on here, but uh, you know, a, a lot of it. Uh, I know, I know, um, a lot of the uh, uh, people are, are pointing at the IDSA um, guidelines um, about them not calling it, uh, you know, a chronic issue, 
Um, it has more to do with the insurance companies and kind mm-hmm. of their their way of kind of um, attacking these doctors. Um, they're, they're basically saying that they don't they don't want to pay for the treatment that these people are going through. They don't want to pay for long courses of antibiotics that these uh, that these people uh, require. Um, so you know they're they're by by saying it's only a, a, an acute issue and it only takes two weeks of antibiotics. They're basically denying like so in some cases like like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of treatment that uh, that these people actually require. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get into the, uh, the history of it um, for a little bit. Um, uh, Tiff, do you want to yeah. listen to yeah. that? I know we don't have tons, but uh, we can kind of give a brief overview. Well, it was originally thought to have originated in North America in a place called Old Lyme, Connecticut, um, where there was a big blow-up of cases in the 1970s. But there was an article on SOT uh, called... Lyme disease bacteria came from Europe before the Ice Age. And some, uh, researchers at the University of Bath and their colleagues in the United States, uh, they studied the evolutionary history of the Borrelia burgdorferi uh, uh, spirochete uh, that's carried by a tick that causes Lyme disease. So they studied that and they looked at these housekeeping genes and uh, they found th- 33 different combinations of these genes were found, and it shows that the Borrelia spirochete originated in Europe, but it's been present for a long time in North America. Um, so I guess it's a lot older than people think that it is. I think, Doug, you have some information regarding that? Well, yeah, I watched I a really interesting... Oh. oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say I, I, I watched a really interesting um, interview with uh, Dr. Dietrich Klinghardt um, with Mercola, uh, and he he actually had some interesting things to say about the uh, the the history of the um, these spirochetes. Um, he he thinks they've been around for a very long time, and that if you look through history, you can actually find um, incidences. Uh, he mentioned a, a community in in Germany where the women uh, who work out in the fields always seem to end up with these like swollen knees and uh, kind of arthritic joint kind of conditions. Um, but it's not um, nearly as kind of virulent as, uh, as it is today. Um, he talks about how um, uh, is, it, there's a possibility that Mozart and, uh, and Beethoven uh, were, were suffering from these uh, types of diseases and even Napoleon. And, um, but he he seems to think that something has changed recently to make it more virulent. Like it it is uh, you know affecting humans in in ways that you didn't really see in history. Like it um, was I guess you could, I wouldn't say benign, but it was it was relatively it was less um, uh, severe than it seems to be now. Like people weren't as debilitated um, as as you see th- uh, these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that kind of is tied to the whole Plum Island conspiracy. Um, speaking of virulence, um, in the early 1950s, I guess there were scientists maybe, if this is true or has any merit whatsoever, but uh, some scientists are said to have come over with Project Paperclip after the Second World War, and they mm-hmm. conducted all of these experiments with infectious ticks. Mm-hmm. So... 
um, that's something to consider. That's interesting because Gulf War Syndrome, you know, originally researched from veterans that came back sick, and um, the research was pioneered by Garth Nicholson, who speculated it was an infectious agent because it was then transmitted to families from veterans, and he finally pinpointed um, the agent Mycoplasma vermitans that is also speculated to be transmitted like, you know, um, by ticks, but also through contaminated vaccines and so forth. Mm. Yes, there's a lot of controversial material here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing I find interesting about the history is that Borrelia burgdorferi is a spirochet, and it's very similar, like a coffin, so to speak, of Triponema pallidum, the agent of syphilis, and mm. uh, the disease that it causes is very similar to syphilis. Like it can be transmitted congenitally, like mothers to their offspring. It can be transmitted sexually, um, mm. so not only by ticks, and it can cause neurological disease, but also transmission through old tissues and so forth. So that is interesting as well. Yeah, there's been a lot of evidence lately that it spreads in ways um, not uh, generally recognized. You know, the, in, in the mainstream, they say the only way you can get it is from a tick bite. That's it. But, um, you know, there's lots of cases where um, they found people who have not, there's no evidence that they've had any kind of tick bite. Um, entire families come down with the disease, even though, um, you know, it, maybe only one of them was bitten by a tick or, or there's no evidence of a tick bite. There's some evidence that it might actually also be spread by mosquitoes and spider bites. Um, this is all very controversial because, you know, the IDSA and uh, all the mainstream medical association says that, no, this is not, not the case. It can only be uh, transmitted by ticks. So there's, there's a know, lot of... That, that reminds me of the Black Death when they said, oh, it's only transmitted by fleas. So it could just yeah. turn out to be something <laughs> something that we discover years from now. Oh, it really wasn't spread by tick bites. Maybe yeah. it just came from space. History repeats. I think even related to the history, you know, one thing, uh, uh, indirect evidence that is not transmitted necessarily by ticks is that, you know, um, Dr. Willie Bulldorfer, the one who discovered the, the spirochet in the microscope uh, from patients in Lyme's city, um, he contracted the disease. And what happened is that an infected rabbit got urine in his eye, and mm -hmm. he experienced the symptoms almost immediately. And he mm -hmm. developed a bull's eye rash under his arm just a few days after that incident. So it was mm. urine, infected urine, you know. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. Well. Um, well, Gabby, that might be a good segue into uh, just kind of an overview of Lyme's. Can you fill us in on, on what the uh, what the symptoms are yeah. and, and, you know, how, how it presents? Yeah, so I have a very nice overview here by Dr. Jay Davidson, who wrote a book called The Five Steps to Restoring Health Protocols, Helping Those Who Haven't Been Helped with Lyme Disease, Thyroid Problems, Digestive Issues, and More. 
He says that Lyme disease, well, is the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi. But he reminds us that there are over 100 different strains of Borrelia in the United States alone, and more than 300 worldwide. Researchers now believe that mosquitoes, deer flies, black flies, horse flies, fleas, lice, carry and transmit Borrelia. Deer, birds, mammals, and rodents can also be carriers of Lyme. And research from the University of Wisconsin shows Lyme spirochet in the blood, synovial fluid, colostrum, and urine of cows mm. and horses. And um, the experts like Dr. Ray Stricker say that migratory birds are a big contributor to the worldwide, worldwide spread of Lyme disease. And uh, we carried an article in thought this week that showed precisely this to be the case, and that some of these migratory birds actually came from Central America. And uh, this explains why Lyme disease is found on every single continent except Antarctica. And it can be even contracted via dead fragments of the spirochet. Mm. So, to illustrate the problem, also that Erica was sharing with us uh, on connecting the dots article, according to an unpublished school study by the CDC, the median duration of an episode episode of Lyme disease is 363 days, at an average cost of 100 thousand um, dollars per patient. Mm. So, so that's just a basic overview. Then um, the, we have, uh, we all know that there are two main forms of Lyme disease. The acute Lyme disease, which can be very easily treated with doxycycline, which is an antibiotic. If it's given right away, the, you know, it has a fairly good chance to stop your problems with Lyme disease right there in the act. And, uh, but if no antibiotic treatment is given, then a person can develop what is called chronic Lyme disease. This is what the CDC and the biased researchers doesn't want to recognize to exist. And um, it typically turns into a form of chronic autoimmune disease over time, which makes it very difficult to deal with. And um, the problem is that people usually don't experience symptoms right away with acute Lyme disease. And uh, only 30% of Lyme disease patients uh, develop a bull's eye rash. Mm. And then we have a catastrophe, so to speak, because Lyme disease is um, pleomorphic, it, uh, which means it takes on different shapes at different stages when it develops in a chronic stage, and even adjusts as a result of changes in its environment. So this is why Lyme disease is called the new great imitator or the great mimicker. There are at least three different forms of Lyme bacteria. The spirochet, which has a spiral form, the cell wall deficient form, and the cyst form. If the Lyme bacteria is not in spirochet form during transmission, there will be no bullseye rash. Hmm. And um, the spirochet form as the classic form of Lyme disease and that weaves through joints and tissues. 
but it doesn't. Um, it, it's not a spirit when it when it flows in the blood. Um, when it's in the blood, you can also find uh, the fifth the fifth form, which is basically the spirit um, uh, joining themselves up and morphing into a little ball, you know. And uh, this creates a form that is very resistant to stress. Antibiotics are not useful to treat this form because they don't cross um, the the blood-brain barrier very well. And um, it can actually exacerbate the situation. Um, I think it's a good analogy what um, they sometimes uh, compare it like to a storm, you know. Um, there is a storm and uh, created when you treat something with antibiotics and there's a lot of destruction. And uh, sometimes you really need to, when it comes to chronic Lyme disease, to deal with every single possible form, spirit and cell wall deficient form and the biofilm as well, biofilm. It's like basically a strategic force, like a defense system that these bacteria um, get into, like a castle, so to speak, so they can defend themselves against antibiotics, stress, and any attack. So yes, treatment can be very prolonged, difficult, and it may contain several different things other than antibiotics, and it can last, you know, between six months, one year, you know, sometimes even more. So (laughs) that's a general overview about treatment. And um, I think that it is very important to have, um, this guy recommends Kick kit as part of an emergency first aid kit because it comes with a tick removal device so you can properly mm-hmm. remove a tick. That's very handy. And uh, and it also you can send the the head of the tick to a lab to a lab and it comes with the price of the kit. They will analyze it for you to see if there is borrelia or other co-infections there. So I think that's a very good idea to have in your emergency kit. And well, that's the uh, thing. A lot of people are bitten by a tick, but they don't notice it. Or sometimes the tick is so small. Like I think I read somewhere that it can be as small as a poppy seed, and you might not even know. Mm-hmm. Or say you feel a bite on your leg or somewhere, and you just absolutely reach down and scratch it. You're not thinking, oh, lines is it? But you could have just knocked the tick off that you could have saved and taken somewhere to be tested. And the fact yeah. that you mentioned that people don't want a bullseye rash, so they could have Lyme disease and not really know it. They just know that they feel bad for some reason. Yeah, that's. I think that's very important. And uh, I think it costs like $20. I mean, it's not very expensive. I will have that kid if I would live on a, on a high endemic area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another thing... Yeah, Yes. Well, I was just going to say that was something that, for me, from like a lay perspective, uh, before we were kind of prepping for this show, 
um, <clears throat> you know, I live in the northern United States, and people are aware of it here. Uh, my brother had Lyme years ago. Um, a friend of mine actually has it right now. And uh, <clears throat> it's kind of generally known, you know, that you want to watch out for tick bites, but it's not considered um, such a drastic thing. It's like, well, you know, check your ticks, and then if you get a rash, then go in. Um, but that's really the extent of any knowledge, I think, in the general population about Lyme. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and for me, I, I had absolutely no idea that it was able to be transmitted um, by all these other means. Um, so it's definitely something that people want to uh, watch out for. I mean, you don't want to let, you don't want to let the, the paranoia kind of <clears throat> grip your mind, you know, every day, but you do want to be careful and, and watch for these symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yes, and even those who don't have symptoms, some food for thought is uh, one of the uh, of the researchers, Dr. Klinghart, that we mentioned. He says that he hasn't seen, you know, any patients with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, who doesn't have tested positive for Borrelia. So a lot of these diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, that we might think is just like, oh, it's part of getting old, of a very bad diet, pesticides, toxicity. Well, these people are testing positive for Borrelia. And it could be a manifestation of what they call Lyme brain, you know, inflammation in the brain caused by several factors, one of which is Borrelia burgdorferi. So yeah, I think that's a really important point, actually, that, um, yeah, that Dr. Klinghardt said he hasn't seen cases of these, um, you know, chronic illnesses that are thought to be, you know, autoimmune or, um, you know, some some other um, cause of them. He hasn't seen a case that hasn't tested positive for Borrelia. So, I mean, when you think about the implications of that, like, you know, MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, all these diseases that, uh, you know, they'd say, oh, it's, you know, luck of the draw, it's your genetics, all these kinds of things, they're actually, um, the possibility is that they are all caused by these sorts of infections. And I think that gets back into the, the whole kind of conspiracy angle of why this kind of information is being suppressed. Because you think about all the treatment protocols that people with these chronic conditions have to go through, all the drugs, the, the immune-suppressing drugs, and uh, all these, these expensive pharmaceutical protocols, um, you know, there's there's a lot of money exchanging hands there. So if it came out that no, wait a second, this can this is something that can be uh, treated with a, you know an antibiotic protocol, um, you know that that's basically the uh, goodbye to the cash cow, right? So um, I think uh, I, I think that might be an angle on why this kind of information is so controversial and is being suppressed so effectively. One, one of the things that I find more disturbing is that Lyme disease can mimic pretty much every single psychiatric disease mm. uh, to the point that you really have to make the differential diagnosis, not only psychiatric diseases, but diseases like multiple sclerosis. You always have to keep in mind Lyme disease. And, of, of course, like nowadays, doctors, they just don't, you know, they don't think about Lyme disease. And concurred, you know, a treatment for psychiatric illness versus an antibiotic treatment where people can get better. There are reported cases of people with schizophrenia where they got antibiotics, they felt better, like we discussed this on our earlier show. And mm. same thing with multiple sclerosis, like Lyme disease can mimic every single symptom and sign of multiple sclerosis. 
and there's no comparison because multiple sclerosis you treat with immunotherapy, with corticoids, with steroids that actually worsen the infection. You know, it, it mm. causes the bacteria to spread more easily, so the mm. disease gets progressively worse. Well, you treat patients, the same patients, with antibiotics, and they have a chance of recovering. You know, pretty, mm-hmm. you know, damaged neurological syndrome. They can be recovered. You know, so pretty disturbing in many ways. Gabby, in your practice, mm-hmm. um, do you see cases of, of Lyme? No, and that's that's very interesting because I studied Lyme disease. This is, you know, as a part of any board, uh, national board test, and uh, and the impression I had that wow, if this is like you know, we should be really looking for this, so to speak, like mm-hmm. treatment, you know. And uh, but there is then this uh, like stigma or like you know concept that oh, Lyme disease is just like deer tick and it's just in certain areas, like you will think, oh, maybe some parts of the United States or like Scandinavia or Northern Hemisphere. Whereas, you know, now I didn't realize that it was something that, you know, even migratory birds from Central America were carrying over the U.S., you know. I never heard of mine disease when I was in Costa Rica, for example. And to mm. think mm-hmm. that you know, so many people I saw might have had it, you know, it's like, it's, it's you know, it's crazy. Yeah, it really is. It's like, uh, you know, I, I, you know, while I was watching that documentary, and I know um, Erica's going to talk more about this, but uh, the uh, the documentary Under Our Skin, and it was showing all the different people and all these different manifestations of the disease. And it's just made me think of all the people who I know who have some kind of uh you know, um, autoimmune condition or what's thought to be an autoimmune condition, um, you know, MS, Parkinson's, uh, spondylitis, um, you know, all these people and and, and just thinking that it might actually just be, uh, you know, an infection uh, with these bugs Mm -hmm. and how these people could probably be be helped if they saw like a Lyme literate doctor. Um, It's just, it's kind of mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And then we have to keep in mind that blood tests nowadays are completely useless like mm-hmm. in the sense that they you will you could have Lyme disease and your test can come back negative sometimes what can happen is that you can start treatment and then your immune system you know starts working up again and then the test could show positive but that's not necessarily the case and this is mm-hmm. something that the biased researchers from the CDC, they don't want to admit, like, the blood test negative, no problem. Whereas, mm. you know, it's demonstrated over and over again that, uh, especially with the new research, that no, like, all the bacteria, not only Borrelia burgdorferi, are there. And just to mention a brief list of common co-infections, but not because nowadays, it's like, it's, it's not only Borrelia burgdorferi, it's just like a lot of other things it's, for example, Babesia, a Babesia, which is a malaria-like blood parasite, Bartonella, which is the agent of, scratch, of cat scratch disease. There's also Ehrlichia, and there's also Mycoplasma, for example, Mycoplasma fermentans, which is known to be one, if not the most difficult infectious, infectious agent to get rid of, you know. And... Um, 
and especially babesia, it causes a lot of psychiatric symptoms. Like you can have severe depression and try every single thing on the book, on the world. You can be very strong-willed and you will not be able to get over your psychiatric illness if you don't treat the infection, you know, pretty much. So, yeah, self-infections. Yeah. And it's it's really you know because like you were talking about Gabby the the um, the these different uh, bacteria can take on different forms and they can you know they hide in different areas and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to detect um, because you know it's only it's only detectable if it's in a very spe- uh, particular form um, it can it can mutate into different forms especially if there's any kind of uh, um, you know, when it's protecting itself by entering into biofilms or can hide in the joints. And, you know, if you do a blood test, you're only going to pick it up if it's in the blood, which, you know, is, mm-hmm. is not um, as as common. It's it's much more likely to be hiding in tissues or, you know, hiding in the joints, hiding in the brain. Like it could be, it could be anywhere. So I think, I think that's one of the reasons why um, it, it, these blood tests can be so ineffective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, there was even an article carried on uh, saw back in 2012 uh, talking about how Lyme disease can also hide in the lymph nodes. Mm. Yeah. So I would imagine the blood test wouldn't be able to... Yeah, that's right. But the disturbing thing is not only lymph nodes, it it hides in the brain, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. where it's more difficult to, you know, to reach... You know, antibiotics, that's why some of the doses of antibiotics needed are such high doses because it has to be able to reach the uh, bridge through the blood-brain barrier. It's a, yeah, very difficult treatment. And uh, and once they are able to reach, say, the lymph nodes or the brain and stuff gets mobilized, that's when blood tests could come back positive. But that's not the usual treatment the doctor will think to give, you know, oh, let's give very high doses of antibiotics, you know, <laughs> in several combinations, you know. <laughs> well, one thing that I wondered when I was looking through this Lyme stuff is what is the difference between the people who have an acute Lyme infection and the ones where it turns chronic? Like, is it the like the same with almost everything else, like how good their nutrition is overall, how strong their immune system is at the time when they became infected. That's what I'm guessing, but I couldn't really find much on that. Yeah, I I did read something interesting about it, is that, you know, in the acute phase, it is classically the spear shed, uh, that's why, well, it can, that's the one that can cause a bullseye rash. And mm-hmm. um, it's like a local infection versus a widespread uh, systemic one. When it's acute and it is localized, you know, the bacteria get, uh, have, it takes like 12 hours to replicate. And uh, that's why treatment is started right away. And it can pretty much like take care of the infection right there um, more effectively. But once it's widespread, it develops all these forms, biofilms, cysts, so well deficient, and it hides in lymph nodes, it hides in the brain, 
and it can lay dormant for years without grieving problems until a person has like stress in its life or very crappy diet or other environmental factors and that could help, you know, manifest the the disease. Yeah. It's, it was really interesting in that interview I was watching with Dr. Klinghardt. Um, he actually, in his treatment protocol, the first thing that he does with people is, number one, he cleans up the EMF environment. Um, because apparently, like, if you're being constantly bombarded with, uh, with electromagnetic uh, frequencies, uh, you know, from things like uh, Wi-Fi, from cell phones, cell phone towers, um, you know, dirty electricity in the home, uh, we've done a, done a couple of uh, shows in the past on that. Um, if, if somebody is, is, you know, being worn down by these sorts of things constantly, they have basically zero chance of, of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things he does is cleans up the mold in the environment, um, you know, getting, getting rid of, you know, the, the homes in North America. It's less of an issue in, uh, in Europe um, with their old style of, of, uh, of construction. But houses in, uh, in North America are, you know, these just, you know, basically petri dishes of, of mold. You know, there's all these these mold. Uh, you know, mold is is hiding out everywhere. Anywhere there's some kind of damp environment or something like that, um, and that is constantly wearing on your immune system. So he said another mm-hmm. thing: if you can't, if you don't clean up the mold in the environment or get out of an environment that's moldy, again, you have basically zero chance of of getting better. So it, I, I found it really interesting that these are kind of the first stages for him. These are these are the mm-hmm. things that you have to kind of take care of first. Um, just to give the person a fighting chance, um, and nutrition comes into that as well. Um, you know, obviously, if your your diet is loaded with uh, with you know trans fats and sugar and uh, genetically modified uh, foods, these things you know you you don't have a chance. You can't actually um, get on top of these infections. Uh, you need to get it so your immune system is recognizing these things and actually able to kind of fight itself, uh, mm-hmm. fight fight for itself. So. Um, yeah, I found found that to be very interesting. Another thing you said is that uh, in EMF environments, mold uh, can be up to 100 times more virulent. So cleaning up the EMF environment is obviously like the first stage, then getting rid of all the mold, um, which might have been actually growing a lot more um, extensively because of its exposure to this radiation. Frightening. Yeah, it's very scary. <laughs> In fact, uh, people do, who report who have very high rates of success treating Lyme, chronic Lyme disease, they do have a holistic approach. They not only use herbs that destroy biofilms, uh, supplements, nutritional supplements, changes in diet, uh, an anti-inflammatory diet, gluten-free, you know, dairy-free, but they also detox for heavy metals, like mercury, uh, lead. They also support the adrenals. Uh, they treat insomnia. They they promote meditation programs, psychological programs, and they also have antimicrobials. You know, antibiotic protocols. It's like very holistic approach. You literally mm-hmm. have to like try everything, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they do have success rates. You know, in treating Lyme disease, people that were never helped before. Lyme disease uh, patients, you know, on an average um, in the United States, they consult 20 to 30 doctors and specialists before going to the right doctor, so to speak, that will treat everything holistically. 
And some people report haven't seen even 40 doctors. They come up with huge files of every single diagnostic test um, done to them, diagnostic labels like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple sclerosis, uh, ALS, you know, you know. Lupus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't until then that they, that, like, they, they thought of like an infectious agent, you know, they they found a, a, a holistic practi- practitioner or a doctor that will actually treat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Mark yeah, Simon Dr. actually just recently had a, a video informative article that came out in October about strategies to tackle Lyme disease. And just what you said, Gabby, diet, you know, a, a dealing with the other things like mold and, and parasites, and um, the importance of repopulating good gut bacteria and uh, good sleep and stress. So that that whole um, idea to a functional medicine approach and looking mm-hmm. at it from, from all the different angles, so not just one angle. Mm-hmm. This makes me wonder about something we were kind of talking a little bit uh, before the show <clears throat> about why doctors would be ignoring these kind of things. I mean, I know <clears throat> that there are a lot of doctors, uh, you know, in the world who are studying, who are looking for new things, who are open to different kind of treatments. Those doctors do exist, um, but we also, you know, we refer to mainstream medicine in that way for a reason, because there are also a lot of doctors who just kind of go with, you know, the common knowledge. And, um, I mean, to me, it's, it's baffling that a doctor would tell somebody that they're crazy. But, you know, yeah. instead of saying, like, okay, well, let's look into this, maybe, you know, it, it's like bedside manner has completely got out the window. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think, because we, we didn't get to talk about this very much before the show. What do you think are some of the reasons um, that, that they're not paying more attention to this uh, possible involvement of, of these bacteria? Uh, you know, is it, is it strictly money? Is it the status quo? Um, you know, would it... Did it hurt their ego to admit that they were wrong? I mean, I'm sure there's many different causes, but I'm curious what you think. I think that's part of it. And you mentioned uh, bedside manner, and that's just assuming that they have much of a bedside manner in the first place. Uh, doctors get worn down. Like, people come in and they just really want answers. They want somebody to solve all their problems for them. I don't know how uh, doctors deal with that a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and that can be really difficult if you really don't know what is going on with that person, and you don't want to look like you're stupid. You want to look like you're, mm-hmm. you have some authority and you have the answers, and if a person comes in and they're demanding answers from you and you don't know what to say, I mean, you might go on the defense and say that they're crazy or they're attention-seeking or they're drug-seeking or something like that just to get them off yeah. your back and get them out of your office. Sure. Yeah. I- I think it has a lot to do with even how we train doctors. You know, you think about um, people who go into medical school. They're the people who are high academic standing, um, people who study hard, who can memorize very well. Um, but very little is, is looked at in, in terms of, like, social, um, emotional intelligence, that sort of thing. So you get all these people going through medical school who might just be driven by the financial aspect, really. Um, and... They, you know, it, it, you don't test for things like bedside manner. 
You know, it's just like, how good are your academic scores? So you have all these people who essentially, you know, I'm not knocking on doctors because obviously there are some very good doctors out there, Gabby being one of them, obviously. But uh, <laughs> you end up with a, a lot of, of people who are basically just really good at memorizing and following up protocols. Um, mm. So, you know, if they're, if they're being given this information that's um, handed down from this kind of authoritarian perspective and like, no, this is, this is what Lyme's disease is and you don't look outside the box, you know, they don't, they don't question there's no uh, there's no reason for them to, so I think I think a lot of it comes down to that. It's like who who are our doctors? And I think it's that. also because it's um, very difficult to treat. I was watching Dr. Horowitz's one of his YouTube videos. He's the one that wrote Why Can I Get Better, and the protocol that he was laying out is like you just have to do all these differential diagnoses. It's not like you can have somebody in your office for five or ten minutes and be like, okay, I know what to do. I mean, they have to come back, and you have to keep trying different things and glutathione and this antibiotic mm-hmm. and that antibiotic, and you have to address the gut and all this different stuff. I mean, it takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of digging, and I don't know if a lot of people are mm-hmm. really willing to do all that. Or and have also, I think the, the whole, you know, if you're like a Kaiser Permanente member, you're constantly getting a different doctor every time you go in. Mm-hmm. So they don't have yeah. any sort of background information on your history or what your symptoms are. Yeah. I, I agree with all with all arguments. It's the way the system is established and also mm-hmm. because curiosity and inquiry is like so discouraged, only protocols to be followed. And also the big influence of like blood tests. Oh, the blood test came negative, so forget about it. You don't have Lyme disease. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, at least where I work, um, it is not financially driven. Like doctors can really earn much less than a cleaning lady. Huh. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I do notice the pro- the relying on protocol thing, like the uncertainty. It's too much uncertainty that cannot be dealt with. Like there is like some kind of brain pain with that, you know. And uh, inquiry and um, an open-minded research is not encouraged. So you know, patients in the end are the ones who have to pay the consequences. And uh, it's actually patients themselves that um, find alternative solutions, and with a little bit of persistence. You know, and, uh, and and network support, they can find the solutions themselves. That's what I think. Yeah, it also well, has to do with the gatekeepers involved too. Like the, uh, um, I'm, I'm thinking of like the the scientific journals and things like that. We've talked about the corruption of science in the past and the flawed studies that get uh, get accepted. And it, it you know, the, these gatekeepers. Um, you know, they, they really are just that. They're controlling the information and what's allowed out there. And, you know, the, the doctors out there don't have a lot of time, so all they can really do is read uh, headlines and abstracts of these studies, and that's the information that they have to go on. So, it, you know, it, that, that I think is another contributing factor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously we're not going to fix the medical establishment during this podcast. Um, <laughs> I think that... Uh, <laughs> I think the one thing um, is, you know, patient involvement. Uh, if patients could, uh, you know, just the everyday, um, you know, John and Jane could um, put more energy into researching what their conditions are, and then when you go to the doctor, you know, be just be open and honest and say, look, I don't have your training. 
um, but I'm also not an idiot, and this is what I've read. Will you please, <laughs> you know, take a look at it? Um, yeah. And I, I personally don't have a lot of experience with trying to convince a doctor to look at my own research. Uh, hmm. So <clears throat> I guess yeah. I can't really speak to that, but, I'm, you know, I've, I've heard enough stories about people that are just turned away as well. So it is an unfortunate situation, but I think that by and large, um, I, I know a lot of people personally who just go to the doctor, what they say is, is law, you know, and then they do mm-hmm. that thing and they, they don't think about it beyond that. But I think more patient involvement in, in the actual research of the protocols um, might help. You know. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think one of the problems there is that, uh, you know, when you're dealing with some kind of chronic uh, infection, you don't have the energy you know, the idea of yeah. getting out there on the Internet and spending yeah. hours looking through different articles and all this kind of stuff, it's like you, these people don't have the energy to, to invest in this sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. it, it, I mean, in those kinds of situations, it's good to have an advocate, you know, somebody who's there pulling for you, who's doing the research, who who does have the energy to do this kind of thing. Um, you know, that, that can be indispensable. But um, I, I really feel for these people who, who really, they don't, they don't have... Um, you know, the health to do anything other than just, like, mm-hmm. get themselves into a doctor's office. Like, even that is, like, uh, you know, hell for them. So, I, I you right. know, it's, it's a big problem. Yeah, yeah just watching the video, there was uh, the guy that used to be a park ranger. He said it got to the point where he couldn't remember where he was going in his car. Mm-hmm. And there mm-hmm. was the other yeah. lady. Uh, she could barely walk most of the time. So I see what you mean by people not being able to sit down on the Internet and just Google up a bunch of stuff. I mean, these people are really, really sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings us to... Uh, mode of information for people to look into. We've been talking about this um, Under Our Skin documentary, The Untold Story of Lyme Disease, and I figure I'd just bring it up here because, um, you know, I wouldn't say I was Lyme literate before mm-hmm. I watched this, and when we had this discussion about having this show, um, I saw a trailer for it on one of the articles that we carried on thought that was mentioned previously, and um Basically, for anyone who's interested or who wants to not become an expert but just see about what we were talking about, um, I really recommend this documentary. It was um, produced by Andrew uh, Wilson, Abram Wilson, back in 2008, and it actually ran on PBS. And it won several awards, one being Best Documentary Feature Film. But... Mm -hmm. um, Basically, the whole premise behind the uh, Under Our Skin documentary is that this sickness is a canary in the coal mine. It's what is wrong Mm. with our medical system, and it's a perfect storm of diseases. And it's about two hours long, but it it starts, you know, kind of how we did today about the history, about, you know, in 1970, the first case being in Lyme, Connecticut, um, it was actually called Miss Murphy's Mysterious Disease, and they called it Lyme Arthritis. And then it goes on to talk about um, how this whole idea of the corrupted medical system, and it has extensive interviews with sufferers, like Tiffany noted, uh, you know, the the park ranger who actually, through his experience with Lyme disease, talked extensively about the ecological um, aspects and how, you know, don't be afraid of going outside Mm -hmm. because of this, you know, and he actually wrote a book called Nature Noir about how this 
ecological change. Um, even mentioned it's like the largest extinction in 64 million years. Many species are dying out. Um, viruses and bacteria are finding new new opportunities, and, and maybe that's part of the whole discussion as well. And then it, it did um, a lot to expose the financial ties between the CDC and the IDSA. And, um, you know, this when the movie came out in 2008 is, Shortly after is when the CDC changed their their you know um, numbers from that three hundred thirty thousand to three four hundred thousand, and uh, you know the idea of the vaccine and whatnot, and they addressed a few of the problems with with this whole illness, and one of them that we've talked about is the biggest problem is diagnosis, and mm-hmm. the other one is the lack of Lyme literate physicians, and um, they mentioned, and you guys have mentioned, you know, Klinghart, and then they also mentioned two doctors that um, have had a lot of success in treating Lyme. Uh, one of them is Joseph Jensnick, and he was a doctor in North Carolina, and he tried to get the IDSA um, to change their medical guidelines for treatment of Lyme. And it turns out that he ended up having his license suspended for over a year. Uh, they said he was acting inappropriately. And interestingly enough, the complaints came from the insurance industry, you know, mm-hmm. companies, because they just really didn't want to pay for, mm-hmm. as we talked about, the extensive treatment. And another doctor that's um, shown in the movie is uh, he's a 70-year-old, 79-year-old man, Dr. Jones. He's actually the leading pediatric Lyme doctor. He's treated over 10,000 cases of Lyme patients, pediatric patients, and he does do the um, antibiotic protocol, and he talked a lot about, um, you know, this trend through breast milk and possibly even while women are pregnant, and he's been for the last two years under legal proceedings. You know, he's appealing his case, but... This whole idea, and you really see it played out in the movie, that the um, patients are being told it's all in your head or you're crazy. You know, almost every single person who talks about their experience in the documentary says they were told to go see it, mm-hmm. that it's, you know, it's not Lyme, you're crazy, and it's just heartbreaking. And especially when you see the children that are, are suffering with this disease. And, you know, how they just want to be normal. I mean, it really, for me in particular, and I know others who watched it, it really did a great job of bringing all of this information into a cohesive whole. So as we were talking about searching the Internet and whatnot, and people are suffering from sort of facilitating, you know, That's pretty bizarre. Well, we are definitely having some technical difficulties here. I'm not sure what's causing that. Well, let's see. 
Now everybody's muted and the sound has gone away. Okay, I'm not muted okay, anymore, not, so it's not me okay. and Erica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. I just, There's uh, a disturbance I, in the force. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it's me, actually. Did it stop? It's me. Okay, no. hold on. I'll mute myself. <laughs> but it's the, uh, it's the CDC. <laughs> They're coming through loud and clear. Yeah. It's the Borrelia. <laughs> Well, I'll just finish off because I wanted to add, you know, again, if people are suffering from these types of ailments and they want to learn more about it, I really recommend this movie. And just uh, this last year, a sequel came out uh, under our skin, too, called Emergence, and it's more hopeful. (laughs) It's um, following the same patients that were in the first documentary back in 2008 and their treatments, and a lot of them are are overcoming a lot of these um, neurological issues and, you know, paralysis and different things associated with it. I also wanted to mention in the film, there was a woman named Dana Welsh, Walsh, who um, started a website and it's called help or it's called uh, live more lime less.com. And basically it's for Lyme sufferers and she does an excellent job kind of charting her whole experience and she's very young and again suffered, you know, fatigue and all these things and didn't know what was wrong with her and it wasn't until she saw several doctors that she started to get the help that she needs. So check it out. Cool. And if I'm not mistaken, uh it's kind of hard to find the free version of Under Our Skin, um, but there are ways. There's to, a version uh, on Hulu. It is on Hulu. It's okay. got commercials. Though. Yeah. And it it is, of course, available to order. Uh, I believe if you want to like order it through um, through Amazon, or if you want to buy a DVD directly on their site, they have a store. But we posted the link in our chat here. Yeah, and when they made the movie, I mean, the the um, bonds that they got was quite amazing. They had uh, many people had said that the film literally saved their lives, and they received many letters from viewers. So that's why I offer it as something for people to check into because it really gives you an overview of, of what people are dealing with. And, again, as we mentioned earlier in the show, this whole idea of conflicts of interest and um, – you know, not having Lyme literate physicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. business transing, networking, and promoting this material because the system can be absolutely crushing. And uh, I, I think I saw the sequel. I think some of the physicians didn't got their practice back. In fact, you know, but they still got a lot of support from viewers all over the world. You know, they still save a lot of lives by the information that was shared. I think it's a highly recommended documentary. Definitely must watch. Yes. And there is a sequel too, right, called Emergence? Mm-hmm. Emergence, yeah. Gabby, you said you were able to see the sequel? Yeah, it's very touching because it follows up all the people that appeared on the documentary that received treatment and what happened to them. And it's really miraculous to what happened to some of them. Recovery was extraordinary. 
And there's also a lot of the updated research, especially what we talked about, that it's not only transmitted by ticks, but it's mm-hmm. a sexually transmitted disease. It can be transmitted um, from mother to child. And there is a lot of research on biofilms, which explains and why there is chronic Lyme disease. So it really uh, makes justice to all the people that said, but I have chronic Lyme disease, and the CDC was saying, no, you don't. Actually, Mm -hmm. they are wrong. You know, the CDC is looking really, really bad, very ridiculous as a scientific, you know, organization, because the research is pretty much like, you know, you cannot deny that. Come on. (laughs) Yes, it's more hopeful. Cool. Well, we, we'd encourage everybody to check that out. Um, again, the link is posted in our chat, but if you can't see the chat, it is underourskin.com. Um, so let's see. While we're uh, talking about Lyme's, we also have a pet health segment today about Lyme disease um, that Zoya recorded for us. So I think we're going to go to that uh, right now, and then uh, we'll come back and we'll uh, wrap up any remaining uh, comments on this topic. Um so for now, here is Zoya with the health segment. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today's topic is Lyme disease in dogs. Although in humans it is considered to be one of the most common vector-borne diseases in the U.S., for example, and even if canine Lyme disease diagnoses are on the rise, There is a debate in the veterinary community as to the real extent of the problem. How many dogs are truly infected? Meaning that there appears to be a big difference between the number of dogs that test positive for Lyme and the ones that exhibit the actual symptoms. For example, there are several states in the U.S. that are considered to be infested with exodus ticks or black-legged ticks. This is a type of uh, tick that transmits Lyme disease. And so several experiments and tests were conducted on dogs from these regions, and the tests uh, indicated that 95% of dogs tested positive for Lyme, but only 5% exhibited any symptoms. What veterinarians found that a large percentage of dogs are seropositive, meaning that they have the Lyme-related antibodies in the blood from exposure to the disease. However, they have no clinical symptoms of infection. It's clear from the statistics the immune systems of seropositive dogs have identified the Lyme disease pathogen and mounted an appropriate effective response. So even though they test positive, they do not become sick with the disease. Now, there was another experiment conducted at the University of Pennsylvania several years ago on Lyme disease in canines. And in this experiment, beagles were experimentally infected with the disease, and none of the adult dogs got sick, and in fact, not not one showed a signal symptom of the disease. Beagle puppies, uh, on the other hand, in the same study showed uh, about four days of transient symptoms of infection, such as fever and lameness. After four days of on and off symptoms, the pups became asymptomatic, which means their bodies cleared the infection without help and they were fine. The incubation period of the disease in this study was from two to five months. 
In other words, after being infected, it took the puppies from two to five months uh, to develop their mild transient symptoms of fever and lameness, which lasted a few days. Their bodies were able to clear those symptoms quickly and completely. The adult dogs never exhibited any signs of Lyme infection, no rash, no flu symptoms, no cardiac or neurological issues, which is quite interesting. So, as I already mentioned, only about 5% of dogs exposed to Lyme disease actually develop symptoms of the infection, which include fever, lameness, lethargy, and shifting joint pain. And uh, these symptoms are quite successfully treated with the antibiotic uh, doxycycline. It is also important to note that dogs that are positive for Lyme disease cannot infect humans. Infections in both people and their pets are being transmitted only by the bite of an infected tick. So what to do if your dog shows symptoms of Lyme disease? First, you have to, uh, you have to go to a vet and ask him to run a SNAP 4DX blood test. Dogs that test positive for Lyme disease with a 4DX test are typically symptomatic. This test usually detects uh, multiplied vector-borne diseases, not only Lyme disease, so it can be useful to rule out or rule uh, in certain other types of bacteria and parasites as well. Your vet may also do a urinalysis to find out if your dog is excreting uh, protein in her urine. If the doctor determines your pet's symptoms are indeed from a Lyme infection, treatment with the antibiotic doxycycline should be instituted. In a very small percentage of dogs with active Lyme infection, much smaller than the 5% that show symptoms, a chronic Lyme disease can result in significant kidney problems and also autoimmune polyarthritis. The later is a type of joint degeneration secondary to an uh, undiagnosed, untreated Lyme infection. If you suspect your pet has symptoms of Lyme disease, it's important to have him seen by a veterinarian. Also important to note that, according to the experts, uh, Lyme disease in cats is rare. If you live in a tick infection infested region, and are concerned about ticks on your cat, it's important to check her for ticks, just as you would a dog. Many tick repellents are toxic to, ki- uh, to cats, so if you feel the need to protect your cat from ticks, uh, you need to talk with, the, with your veterinarian about safe products. Now, here are some um, Lyme disease prevention tips. In the spring, summer, and fall, avoid the tick-infested areas. If you live where Lyme disease is endemic or uh, if you somehow wind up in a tick-infested area, check your dog for ticks twice each day. Look over his entire body, including hidden crevices such as those in the ear, underneath uh, his collar, and underneath his tail. Use a tick repellent. There are natural anti-tick products on the market. Uh, However, pay attention that most of the veterinarians in the U.S. will recommend to use a chemical repellent. It's important you investigate the risks and benefits of any medication before you give it to your pet, as most have side effects. And uh, there is a vaccine available for Lyme disease, but natural vets don't recommend it. One of the most important things uh, you can do to keep your pet safe 
is to create strong vitality in him by feeding a species-appropriate diet. Parasites are attached to weaker animals. By enhancing your pet's vitality, you can help him avoid the ill effects of a Lyme infection or any other opportunistic uh, pathogen he comes in contact with. So this is it for today. I hope the information was useful and have a nice day. <laughs> I can never get over those goats. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Zoya, for that <clears throat> very good information. Um, interesting that limes is one of those things that can uh, affect both humans and animals, so it's something you want to keep an eye out for with your pets, uh, especially dogs. So let's, uh, I guess we'll wrap up for today. We've uh, we've kind of covered the topic. Um, we don't have a lot of uh, further information on this uh, for our listeners today. Um, so I guess do you guys have anything else to uh, to add before we call it a day? No, I think Just be careful and check yourself for text. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, everybody in the chat for participating and uh, be sure to check out the other two SOT radio shows uh, uh, The Truth Perspective tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, on Saturday and then on Sunday at, also at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, is behind the headlines so tune in for those and we will be back uh, next week with another interesting topic on health and wellness thanks again everybody bye everybody thank you bye, everybody. bye. bye.